Welcome to the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. We're dispensing stories of success from across the continuum of care. I'm your host, Hillary Blackburn. Thanks for joining us to learn from leaders throughout the pharmacy industry. Hey listeners, in this episode, learn more about the value-based approach to disease state-specific care. And if you're interested in hearing more about what I'm doing with maternal health, check out www.rxformom.com and reach out if you are a pediatric pharmacist or pharmacist interested in maternal health. I'm looking for others who are also passionate about that and want to help with some content. Or maybe you're also a mom and have questions just like I did. So reach out. Let me know what you think about this project. All right. So today we have a special guest on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. Our guest is Dr. Dan Blumenthal, who received his MD and MBA degrees from Harvard Medical School and Harvard Business School and trained in internal medicine and cardiology at the Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Blumenthal is a past recipient of the American Heart Association's Lenech Young Clinician Award and an accomplished health services and cardiovascular disease outcomes researcher whose previous work has focused on innovations in payment model design, quality improvement in cardiology, and leadership development. He has published over 50 manuscripts in peer-reviewed journals and was previously uh, a member of the founding team at Devoted Health, where he held the roles of Associate Chief Medical Officer and Medical Director for the Health Plan. Dr. Blumenthal, welcome and thank you for joining us on the Talk to Your Pharmacist podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Hillary. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, we're delighted to to have you on and to hear more about um, what you're currently working on. Um, but uh, just you know, um, as we're we're ta- talking, I shared a little bit about your background. But if there's any other gaps in that intro that you'd like to share, a little bit more about your personal life, or maybe where you're calling in from uh, today for the podcast. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, so I, I live I live outside of Boston, um, and um, um, so you know, and I currently um, work at a company called Cardiovascular Associates of America, and I am actually the president of Novocardia, which is the value based care division of Cardiovascular Associates of America, and and, and CVA USA, which is uh, uh, less of a mouthful than then the full name of our organization is the nation's largest cardiology practice management and value-based care company for cardiovascular specialists. And so we, um, um, we work with uh, about 360 cardiologists and over 200 nurse practitioners and PAs across 20 large cardiovascular disease practices in eight states. And um, one of the things that I that we are that I work on and that we as an organization are very focused on is helping those practices to make a transition from being paid in traditional kind of fee for service oriented ways into um, into participating in value and risk based contracting um, mm-hmm. structures and and in parallel, 
implementing new ways of delivering cardiovascular disease care that help to keep patients out of the hospital, keep them healthier, better manage their chronic cardiovascular illnesses. And, and you know, the, the opportunity here we, we think is, is so um, large uh, for patients and for our cardiovascular disease um, specialist colleagues because cardiology, uh, cardiovascular disease is so ubiquitous in this country. Mm -hmm. We, um, you know, we, and, and because um, spending on cardiovascular care is so large and continues to rise. So today, you know, somewhere between 40 and 50% of Medicare, Medicare age beneficiaries have some form of cardiovascular illness. And, and we currently spend about one in six dollars on that we spend on healthcare in this country on cardiovascular care. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge driver of morbidity, mortality, um, uh, and of associated healthcare spending. And there's a lot of opportunity to improve outcomes and reduce costs of care. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Fascinating. So, of course, um, I hope our listeners have heard about value-based care. It's been, you know, something that has been discussed for a number of years. But tell us more about um, how you guys have been successful um, in specifically narrowing down on a, on a disease state, on um, cardiovascular disease, and how you've been able to be um how you've been able to kind of work with those cardiology practices and set them up for success in um, getting these agreements with health plans, et cetera. Um, yeah, so great question. So we are, um, I can, we work with our practices to help them to um First, you know, if we take a step back and think a little bit more about where the opportunities for for driving improvements in health outcomes are in car in the cardiovascular space, um, there are a handful of chronic diseases that you know I think, in general, um, we have great evidence to help guide treatment for, and which continue to be managed variably across this country and and across. Um, across clinicians. And so, it, you know, those those conditions are congestive heart failure, number one, and we have great pharmacotherapies for those conditions. You know, the guideline-directed medical therapy pillars that we, um, that, that, you know, include things like SGLT2 inhibitors and beta blockers and ACE inhibitors and Entresto um, and, um, and MRAs. Um, atrial fibrillation, coronary artery disease, and peripheral artery disease. And those are, those are in my mind, the big four. And, and so we've, we've done a lot of work to um, help standardize um, and measure um, how we care for heart failure patients in particular in the community. And um, we have worked with several of our practices to implement evidence-based chronic heart failure management programs for patients with congestive heart failure focused on a variety of, of aspects of, of heart failure management, not just pharmacotherapy, but also um, self-management approaches and remote monitoring um, to implement evidence-based practices, which, um, you know, help them to improve their quality of life, reduce hospitalizations, and, um, and ultimately, we hope, improve mortality. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Um, yeah, wow. Um, so, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, there was a second question that you had, you know, around how we then translate into the value based the contracting piece. Yes. Of, the, of 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 what we're doing, and so um, we have we have started to work with um, you know multiple um, entities who are you know, bearing financial risk, um, mm-hmm. um, including payers and primary care groups, um, you know, who, who are and ACOs, um, who typically, you know, bear financial debt, you have, have financial risk delegated to them, um, to, uh, we've started to work with those groups to structure arrangements that, um, kind of align, the financial and the clinical incentives of our cardiology practice partners with those of payers and primary care groups and ACOs so that um, when patients do better and when we are we improve how we manage costs of care, there's a reward that flows to, to the cardiologists who are really driving a lot of those improvements as they pertain to cardiovascular costs and outcomes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. So tell us more, because of course, you know, policy always is kind of guiding some of these changes and shifts. So what uh, does that landscape look like right now? Um, Yeah, Yeah, no, it's a great question. So, you know, I I think um, a lot of the focus at the, at the national level, right at, at CMS, um, has been, and I think rightfully remains, you know, um, um, around whole person care and around um, helping drive accountability for quality and outcomes at the individual physician level, beginning with primary care. Um, and I think, you know, we've, we've, we've seen a real, um, uh, not just through CMS's national initiatives, including the ACO movement and um, uh, the various iterations of that movement that that you know that they have have um, that that have that have occurred, um, but also in the private Medicare space through partnerships between Medicare Advantage health plans and um, and private. Um, primary care groups um, who are, you know, work together to share risk, uh, financial risk for patients and uh, patients' outcomes. Um, In the last five to 10 years, we've also started to see an increased focus on how to, how, how we can engage specialists in efforts to improve quality and reduce avoidable spending. And the impetus for that has been that primary care doctors don't practice in a vacuum. In fact, if you look at where money, you know, they rely very heavily on specialists. And if you look at where care is delivered and who delivers it and how much, how much that care costs, primary care physicians really account for a small minority of total care delivered and total cost of care. Um, 80% plus of, of total spending in this country on direct medical care occurs um, within, you know, is, is driven by specialist care. And so, 
Mm-hmm. Um, there has been a, a a parallel focus on how we can engage specialists in the value-based care movement. Um, we've seen that, you know, through efforts to roll out or and study and evaluate bundled payments through the BPCI initiative at um, at CMS launched through BPCI Advanced, which is the second iteration of their bundled payment program, um, and through um, more holistic disease-focused care models um, and um, incentive programs like those that CMS launched for chronic kidney disease and ESRD, um, uh, which is the CKCC. Um, um, You know, in parallel, we've seen um, growth within industry in um, disease, uh, specialty disease-focused organizations which um, you know have, have have tried to and are working to address quality and costs of care for patients with CKD and ESRD in the kidney care space um, uh, the management of outcomes and spending for oncology cancer patients and more recently um, you know uh, uh, in cardiology we've seen started to see a real, increase the growth of of a set of value-based care oriented companies focused on the management of cardiovascular cardiovascular disease and associated costs of care and 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 that's where you know that's where we are um, obviously focusing our efforts okay um yeah always have to kind of follow the the needle and and see um, what CMS is going to pay for, uh, and then sometimes yeah. the other plans will follow. So, um, I, there was one other thing, I guess, Hillary, which is that you know CMS has used fee for service approaches mm-hmm. to try to to try to incentivize um, uh, incentivize specialty specialists to to manage costs of care and quality outcomes through. Um, you know, paying for remote patient monitoring, right? Paying mm-hmm. for chronic care management, paying for principal care, um, paying for transitions of care visits at a rate, a reimbursement, which was slightly higher than a traditional office visit. So um, CMS has used fee-for-service mechanisms to um, to try to to try to engage specialists in you know, in delivering care that CMS views as being valuable care. Mm-hmm. Well, what do you see for the future of the cardiovascular care delivery system um, in the next five or 10 years? Great. That's a great question. Um, uh, how much time do you have? Uh, <laughs> so I, I see... Um, I see care continuing to, I see a few key themes um, that, that um, you know, that, that I suspect will kind of continue to, to play out over the next five to 10 years. I think first we will see um, continued migration of procedural care from care broadly, but procedural care in particular out of hospitals and into community-based settings. Um, and, um, you know, um, we are still very early in the shift of 
you know, common procedures from inpatient and hospital outpatient settings into ambulatory surgery centers and office-based catheterization labs were, were probably a decade behind orthopedics in that shift. Mm -hmm. That's number one. Um, I think we're going to see greater use of technology and, you know, high intensity, um, um, high touch care models in the community and particularly in patients' homes, um, targeting, you know, the, the, the sickest, most complex patients in our, um, in our communities to help them to age in place, so to speak, and, and remain healthy and with a, 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 a great quality of life um, in their homes, in their communities, without having to frequent the hospital um, regularly for inpatient care. Um, I also think we're going to see just, uh, you know, greater use of routine remote monitoring for tracking patient symptoms and um, health status um, in their homes, not just for those highest risk patients, but for patients with specific diseases, for example, for atrial fibrillation, you know, people who have symptoms from atrial fibrillation to track those symptoms and to track their heart rates um, and, and associated vitals um, and uh, the development of rapid alert systems to, to help ensure that those patients are receiving care promptly um, or evaluation promptly when, when, they, when they need it. Um, um, I, I think, um, you know, we are likely to see, um, um, continued, um, and I think one of the really interesting things in cardiology, um, is, you know, over the last five to 10 years, we've had this surge in pharmacotherapies, um, for heart failure in particular, uh, with Entresto and SGLT2 inhibitors but also mm -hmm. for lipids with PCSK9 inhibitors and now in glycerin and um, a handful of, of drugs that are targeting lipoprotein little a um, in clinical trials. And, and I think um, we're going to continue to see, and this is, you know, continue to see um, innovation in the pharmacotherapy space and uh, a lot of value being driven for patients through the development of better therapies for chronic cardiovascular illness. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's exciting as well. Yeah. Um, you know, it's so fascinating hearing about all the different biomarkers and just the, the advancements in science um, for that personalized uh, approach to designing um, pharmacotherapy. So I know all the, the pharmacist listeners will certainly be <laughs> Uh, interested in that. And then, uh, of course, um, play an important role in, in part of the care team uh, around around designing that. So, yeah, I, um, yeah. yeah, that's a great point. Um, you know, we we have um, our heart failure program does incorporate, um, you know, the use of uh, not just, you know, it incorporates critical, critical care critically important care delivered not just by nurse practitioners and physician assistants, but also by pharmacists. And, and so um, 
I, I do think that that we will see greater use uh, reliance upon pharmacists, not just for things like MPM, but also, you know, for the management of of patient care, um, whether it's you know the design and implementation of algorithmic approaches for hypertension and heart failure, or as consultants on you know the outpatient care team. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that that would be great. I hope I hope it is included in part of the the evidence based um, you know p- approach that that you're working with all these different um, uh, physician groups and things. So, speaking of of physician groups and how you're currently partnering, um, you know, it has been uh, a trend for um, more of the physicians to be employed by hospitals mm-hmm. or what well, I think Optum has probably like the largest number of, um, of physicians. And I can't remember who was number two, um, off the top of my head now, but, um, have you seen that also the case with cardiologists? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so you're right. Optum, Optum now employs about 10% of, uh, this country's physician work staff. Um, clinic clinical work staff, um, it, and you know, in cardiology over the last fifteen or so years, we've seen a dramatic shift from independent community based um, practice or or employment to hospital employment. So, mm-hmm. you know, if you if you rewind to two thousand and six, two thousand and seven, about fifteen mm-hmm. percent of cardiologists were employed by hospitals and health systems. And mm-hmm. as of this year, we are somewhere between 85 and 89% of physicians now employed by hospitals and health systems. Hmm. So that's been a dramatic, there's been a dramatic shift in hospital employment mm-hmm. um, or towards hospital employment. And, um, you know, I think that has had um, uh, the, the, the research on this shift suggests that that has that that shift has contributed to increases in costs without clear evidence that that outcomes have improved and and um, uh, and so you know part of what we strive to do is is um, to maintain help help cardiologists to maintain their independent community practices um mm-hmm. and um and remain you know uh it maintain their autonomy and independence mm-hmm. yeah that's great now is is the cardiovascular associates of america what type of structure is that just you know i'm thinking of other types of um yeah. players so we, coming we into are, the market you've got yeah. private equity and um yeah. mm-hmm yeah, so we're a private. We are we are um, we are investor backed, um, and so we typically um, we we our physicians remain employed by their by their practices, but those practices are part of you know are are owned um, by Cardiovascular Associates of America, but the okay. practices maintain their local autonomy, mm-hmm. um, so they govern themselves. And we provide in at the in the central support office, our national support office, because it's a small group of people. We provide support for those practices as needed um, to help them with with 
various operational improvements, care model um, transformation, value-based care, contracting, risk-based contracting, um, um, you know, IT and tech tech related mm-hmm. needs. So we are um, we are here at you know at the central office to support our practices to be successful clinically. Mm-hmm. Um, and um and to grow and and ultimately to be financially successful as well. Yeah, got it. Yeah, there's you've that de- we've definitely seen a lot of that um like ortho orthopedics um there's like the one hinge out of the yeah. northwest and um other different groups that have um um zeroed in and and of course even you know dental um there's mm-hmm. you know a lot of that that have been like roll ups and things um well uh it is always helpful to have that that support um yeah. from the back end and then also just that everybody is kind of um you know working you've got like the same standard kind of of care across um you're going to see the same kind of evidence guidelines and same kind of thing here in Tennessee as you do in Massachusetts um et cetera which is really um helpful and just you know all of the administrative um uh requirements and things that that definitely eats up um a lot of the time and resource for a practice so um, well, fascinating. Well, yeah. uh, Dan, um, one of the, you know, of course, great to hear about the emphasis on pharmacotherapy and and some ways to leverage pharmacists um, in this uh, disease state. Um, one of the, the questions that I love to ask all of our guests is what is some advice that you would tell your younger self or for others out there who are just getting started in their career? Mm-hmm. A great question. Um, um, you know, I uh, th- there are a few things. I think um, uh, number one, you know, I I um, I think when I when I talk to younger physician colleagues, um, I often emphasize, you know, having that that they really think through where they want to be in 10 years and try to work backwards, um, number one. And, um, you know, that was something that it's, that's something I've learned how to do, but that I didn't necessarily know how to do when I was a younger, younger trainee. Um, the second is, um, to think about what kind of organization and, and culture and environment you want to, you want to work in. Um, um, and how you want to spend your non-clinical time, uh, if you, or if you want to, you know, practice full, if you don't want to practice full time, how you want to spend your non-clinical time and in, and in what environment you want to spend your non-clinical time. Because I think, um, you know, having been, um, and, and still being part of both, you know, private practice centric and, um, you know, health system, um, uh, based practice organizations um there are there are great things about both and there there are really important differences and um and i i um i think a lot of you know a lot of trainees who i who i um 
interact with, you know, come out thinking I've just got to get a job. I got to find a place where I can just kind of start to practice. I've been in training for so long um, that I, you know, um, um, you know, I got to get some interviews and, and just make sure that I'm, I'm moving, moving my career forward and they don't necessarily spend enough time thinking about where they where they start their career and and in what type of environment they they want to be in over over the course of their careers. So um, um, so th those are two two or three pieces of advice and, and or questions that I would have asked myself um, and, and that I try to post to others. Yeah, that's very helpful because um, you know in uh, what I found in um, you know training. Um, for healthcare professionals is it's so heavily emphasized on clinical practice yep. and that sometimes we don't think about kind of the big systems um, and, um, or, you know, other disciplines. Like if we're not just, if we're only looking at pharmacy newsletters and associations and things, um, just the value of, of looking at some of those broader and interdisciplinary um types of, of organizations and news. So, um, yeah, very, very interesting. And thank you so much for sharing your time and, and wisdom with us. And we appreciate you being a guest on the talk to your pharmacist podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Hillary. This was a lot of fun and, and, um, and, uh, very much appreciate your time as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk to Your Pharmacist, produced by the Pharmacy Advisory Group. If you liked this episode, let us know by subscribing to the podcast, rating, and reviewing it. Share it with friends. And if you want to be a guest or know a pharmacist leader who has a great story to tell, connect with me, Hillary Blackburn, on LinkedIn and check out our Facebook page, Pharmacy Advisory Group, for updates on Thanks for listening.